Hi, this is Mark, and you're listening to Nerdology. I'm really pleased to say I'm joined today by another one of my podcasting heroes. It's Mr. Eric Escamilla. Hi, Eric. Oh, dear. Hello, hello. I don't know if I'm up to the challenge <laughs> of being anyone's hero, but I am absolutely delighted to be here. You and the other Eric, you're, you're the two main guys that got me into this, so it's your fault. Wow, and you couldn't find two more different Eric's. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's, that's an honor. The original log couple. <laughs> indeed, indeed, more ways than one. <laughs> so yeah, I thought you'd get you onto the show and we chat about some kind of nerdy stuff. You're not really a nerd, are you? No, I'm not. As I often say, I am not really technically a nerd, though I am well-versed. Uh, at least that's how I feel about it. You know the ways of the nerd. Yes, and very capable to mingle. And actually, you know, I mean, nerds make up most of my favorite people, so it's... Mm-hmm. Natural fit, really. Just in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know who Eric is, which I doubt very much, uh, Eric is the host of one of the best Doctor Who podcasts out there. It's called Doctor Who Mostly Harmless Cutaway, or MHC for short. And also, I mean, you do about three million podcasts a week, don't uh, you? There's uh, Prognosis Negative, which is another one that's out there. They do a brilliant run, which we mentioned in the last show, of um, commentaries called Shaken Not Stirred on uh, Bond films, and they're a real hoot. If you get a chance to download one of those, they are awesome. There you go, you've had your plug now. Thank you, I'm glad we've got all that <laughs> dirty business out of the way. Yeah, has to be done, it's a contractual thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, you're, you're a Who fan. It's true. A fan of Doctor Who, I mm-hmm. am, yes. If you get a chance to listen to Eric's show, he's a, a big fan of Series 5. How do you think this last half a season is has matched up to season five, is it close to the quality or can still nothing touch it in your eyes? Well, it's, it's interesting, I guess. Uh, no, not, not, not too much or nothing is really going to be able to come close to series five, but that's because series five is just such a perfect mix of, uh, happenstance and situation and random things coming together at just the right time and everything just peaking. Mm-hmm. At the right time, and you're just not going to get that type of situation. You can't manufacture that type of situation. Um, that being said, while Series Seven is it's 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 a very different animal to me, the first half of Series Seven as compared to Series Five. Mm-hmm. But it's something I very much like, and it's something I very much enjoy because it's it's a fool's errand if you're going to try to duplicate or repeat what they were able to achieve in Series Five. It's just, mm. you know, unattainable. But Series 7 is something different and new, and I really enjoy it because, I mean, that's the only way to I go I found forward. it refreshing after Season 6 because... Absolutely. I uh, just found it got a bit too caught up in the whole River Song thing and the arcs, and it just, I think it needed to just take a step back and just get back to being fun again. Yeah, Series 6 is almost the opposite of Series 5, or... I mean, just a whole bunch of bad things coming together at the wrong time. Uh, while I still... There's some great standout episodes. Absolutely. I, you know, I still like Series 6, and it's still one of my favorite series of Doctor Who. But but I think it was doing what I just said, and perhaps trying too hard to repeat uh, the success of Series 5, and that just wasn't going to happen, which is why I think it stumbled in the end. But Series 7 is, is a, a soft reboot of sorts. Uh, structurally and mm-hmm. certainly now moving forward in the second half uh, a 
for obvious reasons. I look forward to it. But Series 7 and 8 was splendid because I was still, I still had Series 6 fatigue going in. And uh, mm. the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe certainly didn't help ease any of that fatigue no. in the slightest. But ser- so I was not actually greatly anticipating Series 7 going in. But it turned out to that be That probably a helped time. in a way, though. Uh, yeah, probably helped. And also, and actually the shortness of it, too. Um, I've become yeah. much more a fan of the splitting series. Not just in Doctor Who, but just in shows in general. It used to be, it used mm-hmm. to really bother me uh, before, but actually I quite like it. I mean, you're probably in a unique position to answer this. I mean, how do you see Doctor Who in the States? Do you think it's really taken off now? Uh, it's it's taken off. It's It's... It's still not you know, on the top tier. It's not like a banner show or anything like that in America. And It's kind of tucked away on BBC America, which isn't obviously one of the big cable channels, so I suppose that goes against it to a degree. It's, it's true, but, but, but then again, American television is so fragmented these days as compared to the old days that that's not necessarily the most important thing anymore, the fact that it happens mm-hmm. to be relegated to a non-network channel. Because, let's be honest... A lot of the most popular shows right now in this country, uh, they're not um, wide audience uh, appealing shows. Things are much more curtailed now to specific audiences, and those people who want mm. it go out to find it. And a lot of the most popular, I guess what you guys would call cult shows in England, uh, reside yeah. on non-network uh, stations at this time. I mean, First, as it comes off the top of my head, things like Breaking Bad and The Walking mm-hmm. Dead and Game of Thrones and so many other things, Spartacus for some, none of those things, none of those mm-hmm. properties are network shows, uh, but that doesn't hurt any of them in the slightest. Uh, no. bi- I'm catching up with Walking Dead. You- I, um, I, I watched the first series when it came out. Um, we don't have pay TV in our house, so we have to kind of wait for a little while for it to come onto just regular TV. Um, so we're probably a little bit behind the curve. Uh, but I caught up with season two. I really enjoyed it. I know for a lot of people it got a bit slow kind of hanging around the farm, but I, I really liked it, so I'm quite looking forward to season three. Yeah, well, prepare yourself, because uh, yeah, they're definitely going <laughs> in much bolder directions in series three. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, from I, I gather from what you've said, you're a bit of a fan of the comic book. That be fair to say. Uh, a massive fan, it would be fair <laughs> to say. Um, yeah, this is something I've said too because it still surprises me, but then it probably it shouldn't. Uh, how many people are only familiar with the TV show uh, and haven't mm-hmm. read the comic uh, at some point? Because uh, I've said this many times that I can think of very few other properties that work in this way. Uh, some may argue a Harry Potter, perhaps Harry Potter series, the books mm-hmm. and the films, but but it doesn't really matter with The Walking Dead whether you get into the television show first or the comic. Uh, they're like mutually exclusive, and being into one and then getting into the other, they feed off each other. So if yeah. you really like the comic already, you're really gonna like the show, and when you start mm-hmm. liking the show it's going to increase your appreciation of the comic 
etc 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 and it works both ways and it's it's pretty incredible um because uh while they have the same uh over overarching story and basic premise um mm -hmm. one is not necessarily a spoiler of the other that's the most interesting thing about this as, as compared to other properties of this of this nature uh they're mm -hmm. almost a mirror verse of the other comparing the comic storyline and the television show. And so it's really actually kind of exciting, whichever side you're coming from, how things are mixed up just a bit. It's like an alternate mm -hmm. universe. And it's just tons of fun, uh, regardless of which way you do it, in which order. So it sounds like you can take something different from your experience of going from the show to the book or from the book to the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And... So it's not like reading a Target novelization. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Although they would slip in the odd little bit here and there, but yeah. oh yeah, I mean there are things that it's are, word that are word. tried and true. Uh, I mean, there mm. are certain points of narrative that they still hit, but then but they find creative ways of getting back around to it and ways of tricking you and thinking, oh you you know you think so and so is going to be responsible for the death of so and so, and they get you into a false sense of security that that's not going to happen. But mm -hmm. then in a roundabout way, uh, you know, sometimes history repeats itself and sometimes it doesn't, but they keep finding new and interesting mm -hmm. ways to achieve that. Uh, it's just, it's tons of fun. Oh goodness. It's tons of fun. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, me as a complete comic book newbie. Um, I mean, I've read comic books way back in the day. I'm old enough to have read um, Watchmen and, Dark Knight Returns and those sort of things mm -hmm. um, way back when they first came out. But I have to admit, I haven't read any comics for a long, long time. So obviously it sounds like this is one that you'd recommend. Is there anything else that would kind of fall into your list of must-read comic books? Absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat as you in that I wasn't ever that hardcore into comic, but I was a comic fan when I was younger. And for me, primarily... It was the late 80s, early 90s for me, and primarily X-Books mm -hmm. for me, or meaning things that are X-Men or related to X-Men, uh, was mm -hmm. what I was most focused on. But I was never that into it. I was very casual. You know, I'd buy and read it, but not obsess over it at all. But since the late to mid-90s, I haven't read comic books at all, or been interested in, mm -hmm. in it at all. It wasn't only until very recently, actually earlier in the spring of this year, where I thought, you know what, I kind of want to see what's going on over here again. And I started mm -hmm. off very slowly, but then fortunately or unfortunately, I got into some things really early on that really, you know, got my interest really. Uh, and the, I think the first one was, uh, was this title called Saga, uh, okay. published by Image Comics, who... For those who don't... I mean, everyone knows the big two, Marvel and DC. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And obviously their bread and butter is superhero comics. But the biggest uh, indie comic uh, publisher besides the big two is probably Image. And Image, they make The Walking Dead. But they just came out with mm -hmm. Saga earlier this year. And at the time of this recording, they just released, like, issue seven. Uh but Saga, I, I peeked into it early on. I just, oh my goodness, this this is this is something else. 
Um, it's often described. So what makes it so good? <laughs> it's often described as Star Wars meets Game of Thrones. Um, okay, that's a pretty heady mix. Yeah, because it's a. It, it takes place in a Star Wars like universe where you're not really sure mm-hmm. if it's the future or the past, but galaxy far, far away type situation. Yeah. Uh, but then it has some of the political intrigue a bit of Game of Thrones and many different characters in different parts of this space fantasy universe doing different things uh, and wondering how it's all going to come together. Another thing I compare it to, which I know you're not necessarily fond of, is Firefly. Uh, that's another way I would... Yeah, describe. I tried. I struggled. But... I think I'm in the, the very small minority of people who haven't really been able to get into it. I think most people I know are, are big fans. But I love Saga. It it combines those elements, and like mm-hmm. many indie comics or non-superhero comics, uh, they cater to an audience, you know, an, a slightly older audience, meaning... You know, it's like, what do they call it? Post-watershed television. Uh, sure. It's not over the top, but it's just... For... I don't know if it was the same in the States, but I know in the UK, um, for a long time, comic books were thought of as a medium for like kids' entertainment. Oh, that... Where I think that will change in the sort of 90s. That is basically the same here. Even though comics were drastically changing during that period you were talking about earlier with Watchmen and... Dark Knight Returns and mm-hmm. all that, even though that happened so many years ago now, what, uh, 25 years ago now, it's mm-hmm. taken this long, like, still that perception persists about comics being yeah. for kids when they really haven't been at all, hardly since the mid-90s. Uh, but, but Saga in general, it represents like this whole segment of comics I really wasn't aware of. Because everyone knows mm-hmm. the superhero stuff. Everybody gets that in general. Yeah. But uh, while I read a lot of the superhero comics now, the indie stuff is some of the stuff that really gets the mind working. Because it, it's basically like cult TV or those types of shows, but in mm-hmm. comic book form. Uh, There's so many, if you start reading different ones, they just sound, they, they start off like shows you may be familiar with. Uh, you know, like, oh, this something that's lost like or like the new show here in the states revolution which i'm not a fan of but apparently many people are that Mm -hmm. it just it seems like a typical indie comic things that exist in their own contained universe and can be grounded very much in reality but just have like some type of twist uh that's Mm -hmm. what indie comics in general are like and uh there's a lot of good there's tons of good ones out there but uh i get my fix of both indie comics and <laughs> traditional superhero comics. Um, so do you think there's something about comic books compared to a regular novel that just lifts it above well, and beyond that? It's different, for sure. But it's... Well, first of all, you have to be like me, and I guess you have to be impatient like me. I mean, obviously, I probably have a shorter <laughs> attention span, which is why I tend not to read as many novels uh, by comparison. Uh, yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, and I mean, that's where comic books really, you know, fill in. But it's not just that either. Uh, also, the serialization, of course. Um, that is a big part of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely so in The Walking Dead in comic form. Oh, my goodness. It really, I mean, <laughs> you know, just think about 
and just picture how it was in the old days of Doctor Who being in serial form and having to wait week in and out to continue a story. It's so much different than getting something on demand or in quick succession. Mm-hmm. It's so very different. And that's how The Walking Dead, it's just, you know, you, you just get your little your little taste every month. Wow. it mm-hmm. That is such a different experience. Uh, and if, if, if it's a good property, it just adds to the whole milieu of it all. It's, wow. Um, now, you're obviously a huge movie fan this is true as your podcast would show um do you generally rate the the more recent superhero movies the sort of comic adaptations or do you think they're still struggling on those oh no i have been so sold uh on all the marvel films uh, leading up to avengers um Mm -hmm. to a t i pretty much enjoy them all uh wow i i don't know i've just i've been wholly won over by the, the superhero genre in general in, in films uh, the last decade or so uh, in other words I, I enjoy almost all of them more often than I don't there's just a few specs that are really bad points uh, mm-hmm. so I mean of all the major superhero uh, properties of the last 10 years basically I like them all to different degrees except for the notable exceptions uh, for me uh, those being mm. Green Lantern, Fantastic Four, Elektra. Yeah. Yeah. Other than those, I enjoy everything else to different degrees. Uh, I think Marvel went about it the right way. They played the long game and they, they had this kind of structure in place where they knew they were going to eventually get to this Avengers movie so they could kind of set things up way ahead of time, whereas I get the impression that DC have perhaps been a little bit behind the curve and now there's stories of them maybe coming out with... Um, their own kind of because obviously in the comic books they have the Justice League. Well, um, but I'm not sure quite how that's going to pan out. I I don't either, and I mean, but really you have nowhere else to go if you're DC. Mm. I mean, you have no choice if you're going to try to become more relevant than you have been um, overall. Because I'm, I mean, if you're DC, you can't help but be envious because Marvel's just been doing all right, as you said. Mm. Um. But yeah, uh, I can't help it. I'm a big fan of the whole genre now, uh, in in film form and in comic book form. And I will say, um, on the superhero side, because I mean you have to be picky and choosy uh, since there's so many superhero comics out there as always, and uh, the quality varies wildly by book title. But one of note <laughs> that a title that I never read before but only started reading when the, the film more recently came out this year in 2012 Amazing Spider-Man Amazing Spider-Man I've yet to see that well not just the film but I mean the comic which I never read until the latest film okay. came out as I said I was always an ex-person or uh, an ex-book mm-hmm. person when it came to comic books I never really read Avengers either or any of the uh, individual Avengers characters until this year either but so is the comic book like a reboot, kind of like the the movie was, or is this a long running? Which comic are we talking sort of about? Series of books, uh, Amazing Spider. No, no, no. This is the long ongoing series since the origin. Uh, Didn't DC do this thing where they kind of reset everything and started with issue one again? Yes. To put it, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay, you know, we can skip no, over full, that. Full like. disclosure. <laughs> I am. DC, by and large, is a 
is a alien territory to me. Uh, mm. I, I, you know, I, I don't really read any DC titles except for one or two right now. And mm. it's still foreign country to me. Uh, in, in terms of comic books. Yeah. I have a friend who's very much the same. Yes. Uh, so I can't speak too much of that, but I certainly am aware of what they did with the new 52 and they certainly did by and large reboot the entire DC universe. And in a way mm. started from scratch with virtually every title. Um, very few re- retain some of their continuity, even though it's loosely retained from what I understand things in the Batman line of comics mm. somewhat maintain their continuity. But as far as their different storylines and, and threads and whatnot, but not really much beyond Batman from what I understand. And so they kind of restarted everything, which mm-hmm. uh, would have, I don't know. I, I don't think I could have taken that had the same thing happened in the Marvel universe. Although Marvel has done a light reboot of sorts uh, mm-hmm. right now, very recently, but it's not to the same degree as what DC did, but no amazing Spider-Man. That's the, that's the, uh, the banner title for, for Marvel in, in some ways mm-hmm. it's the closest thing Marvel's ever had to, let's say Superman. Actually, it's more Batman is their uh, lead title as far as comics go. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man is like that lead comic book and superhero among all the individual marvel superheroes anyway amazing spider-man um i mean everyone kind of gets what the character's like if you've seen any of the films ever yeah wisecracking young guy with all these powers but but the current line the newest ones uh have been uh head by a head writer uh dan slot i don't even know how to pronounce his last name s-l-o-t-t hmm. dan slot he's been the guy in charge the Stephen moffat if you will for at least the last two and a half years on the amazing spider-man uh mm-hmm. comic line and for those who don't know he's actually a massive Stephen moffat fan and a massive fan really of, of doctor who dan slot is and hmm. it's it's sometimes apparent in his particular line of Spider-Man comics because there are certain issues uh, where he injects a little bit of Doctor Who here and there. It may not be overt, but actually he has done it overtly. Uh, there was one issue approximately that came out approximately a year ago uh, mm. where one of uh, Peter Parker's friends and co-workers in, in the comic was essentially cosplaying as the fourth Doctor in the comic. Uh, cool. And that was just wow. <laughs> I was like, "What's happening?" <laughs> but if you follow Dan Slot on Twitter, other than tweeting about Spider-Man all the time, Doctor Who is mm-hmm. the second thing he tweets about the most, and it's really incredible. Uh, if you even look at his uh, Twitter profile right now, Dan Slot, his little banner photo is him himself with Matt Smith taken recently. So. That's pretty cool. Amazing Spider-Man. It, it, and it's just good entertainment. It's just good fun. Uh, because mm-hmm. while I get the more adult-oriented storylines in the indie comics I read, Spider-Man is just that, that comfort food uh, out of all the different superheroes. It's kind of like the movie comparison. You've got the Avengers, which is just knockabout fun. It's great. It's a spectacle. Um, a real fun movie. And then you compare it to something like the last Batman film, which was enjoyable. Um, but it gets a bit weighed down in the whole kind of dark grittiness of it, and I don't know. 
they're two different beasts. Absolutely. And yeah, and Amazing Spider-Man in the comic is that lighter fare. It's just fun. And it's one of the few comics that comes out about every other week. I guess a fortnight, as you guys call it. And that's mm-hmm. rare. I mean, that's a fast pace. Uh, but, I mean, it pulls it off. I mean, it, it does it because it's one of the few comics that's capable of sustaining any type of story at that frequent of pace. And so mm. it's so fun. So you get a regular fix. Yes, and, yes, exactly. And since I have a pull list where I'm constantly picking everything up every week, to have that come out every other week, it's just such a delight. Like, I pick mm. up, on average, like six to ten titles a week. Uh, but a lot of them I just go, huh, huh, okay, all right. You know, but, but Amazing Spider-Man, it just almost always delivers. It's just good. Easy. That's a super easy starter comic to be honest, for anybody who mm-hmm. has never really read comics, or that's that's an easy one because you can just jump in at any time. And odds are, I mean, at the, at the current uh, the current uh, line, and you're basically like you don't you're not gonna have to wait five issues to find one that oh okay now I see what this has to offer. No, you can just come in at any point really in the current line under down. It's not drowning in continuity then by the sound of it. It's not drowning. It may be swimming among continuity, but <laughs> as many comics do, they put those little footnotes there just to be cheeky to yeah. let you know. But no, I mean, when I started reading uh, Amazing Spider-Man, as I said, I'd never read it in my life. When I came into it, for instance, like Spidey had just lost his Spidey sense. I, I, mm-hmm. I had no idea how that happened or whatever, but I just jumped on board and just kept going and, you know, you find your way around pretty quick. So now you kind of got addicted to that title. Does that mean you had to go back and uh, collect the back issues as well? I went back a little ways, but there's been so much on my plate that actually I don't have time mm. to go back. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just not really feasible. <laughs> I don't know who had the time to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I have delved into the very first Spider-Man comics when it, when it began with Stan Lee. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in 60, what is it? Well, it's the 50th anniversary, 62. So, is it Steve Ditko that yeah, came up with the, the, well, the character? Yeah, he's a famous artist uh, mm. who originally drew it and other uh, famous Marvel comics of the time, of the era, like the early Avengers and stuff and other Marvel heroes. I know they're regarded pretty highly by comic book yeah, aficionados. absolutely. Because they kind of set the template for what is known as the Silver Age, which was that age in the 60s. Of comic books, mm-hmm. uh, the first resurgence of comics uh, after the golden age, but uh, no, it's good stuff. Editor, yeah, I look back at the originals, and it's just it is a little bit remarkable to see. I mean, it's like going back to an, an earthly child. Oh, even though it's so different in its origins, it's still mm-hmm. familiar in a way that you know. Oh, this is Doctor Who, or this is obviously Spider Man. Uh, it's very interesting. Very interesting, but no, good times, good place to start, I'd say. Uh, because uh, sounds like a good recommendation. Yeah, Spider-Man works out even if you're a noob. Because, for instance, like with stuff with like Avengers, let's say you mm-hmm. watch the movie and go, "Wow, that was so fantastic and neat! I want to go check that out." If you buy the current mm-hmm. Avengers comics, you may be sadly disappointed because it's not necessarily what you see in the movie. Uh, Right. The movie is almost like a stylized version of like the original Avengers, uh, mm-hmm. but the current comics—I mean, it's not even the same team, really. Uh, I mean, 
Hulk isn't even like a regular member member right now, uh, mm-hmm. things of that nature. So, and there's a whole lot of other yeah, and it's just, it has a different flavor than what you see in the movie. Whereas Spider Man, more or less, has the same flavor. It's consistent. Yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you compared it to going back and watching. And an earthly child. Um, obviously, as we record this, we're coming very close to what we like to call Doctor Who Day. Do you have any little kind of um, things that you stick to on Doctor Who Day? Do you like to watch a particular episode, or we go back to the first one? Or oh, uh, perhaps I'm set. Is it not a big deal for well, you? Well, I'm not gonna say it's not a big deal, but well, you know, a lot of this has to do with Twitter because mm-hmm. well, podcasting first in general, and then Twitter because. I don't know if you know, but for the most of my life, I was in a complete vacuum as it, as as far as Doctor Who was concerned. Uh, right. I mean, I, start, I started watching Doctor Who in 83 and watched mm-hmm. it on or off basically for the rest of my life after that. But I had never really spoken or talked about Doctor Who with anyone ever until around 2006. Right, okay. <laughs> so it seems kind of bizarre now. Yes, and I was so I was just in my own vacuum, just taking the show in as if in my world I was the only fan and there was no one else. That's basically what it was like. Unlike other things like Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever where mm-hmm. I'm obviously you know tons of people who are and so but Doctor Who I was a man on an island. Until around, <laughs> I don't think that's um, that different uh, an experience. I think there's a lot of people who've gone through that. Certainly, I know it's uh, been in the UK. I was at the age where I was kind of watching it back. One of the earliest ones I can remember um, was City of Death. That's when I was really, really young. Really, I don't really remember too much of the plot. Yeah, Wait, I mean, you. I didn't know you uh, go back that far with your own recollection. Well, how would I have been? I would have been about. Six. Wow. Well, I didn't realize it because for me, well, I long thought that The Five Doctors was the first episode that I ever saw of Doctor Who as it was broadcast. And I thought that for many years, but actually it was Enlightenment was the first oh, that's that a cool I ever one. saw. Well, I thought it was The Five Doctors because um, it wasn't until I revisited Enlightenment a few years back and mm-hmm. I saw Enlightenment again. And then I realized I had always thought that was a dream. That I had had when I was young. Yeah. I had, like, I thought it was a dream of, like, ships in space and, like, mm-hmm. seeing the fifth Doctor. So I didn't really think that was my first memory of Doctor Who. I thought it was just made up in my head. And then I realized, oh, no, it was enlightenment. That wasn't a dream. <laughs> that was actually real. So that was, I was actually had scant memories of enlightenment. That was the first, I suppose. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't realize you went back as far as uh, City of Death. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hazy. I I had sort of vague memories of um, the professor falling into the machine and turning into a skeleton. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I even associated that with Doctor Who until I saw it years later. I was like, oh, it's like you're saying, it's almost like a dream. You kind of think, <laughs> had I seen that or not? And yeah, so that's that kind of resonates. But, I mean, so podcasting is when I first started hearing what other people's opinions were about Doctor Who and other mm-hmm. stories. I had no idea. Other than my own personal opinions, I didn't know what anybody else thought. Like, oh, this is a good story, this is a bad story, this is a really... Su- I didn't even know... Well, did I or didn't I? I don't really think I knew how popular Tom Baker was or his Doctor. 
Hmm. To be honest, before I started hearing Doctor Who podcasts, circa 2005, 2006, I didn't even know that. Um, but, but with podcasts, and then, like, because we were talking about Doctor Who Day, I never hmm. even really thought about that. I mean, Doctor Who Day or the date until things like Twitter happened along and starting seeing yeah. other people's, you know, tweets and such. So now, so I, in other words, I'm late to this whole game of celebrating Doctor Who Day, and <laughs> I'm, I'm only doing it basically because I'm mimicking my friends. Uh, because though I certainly never had a tradition of doing anything on any particular date, as far as Doctor Who is concerned. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of new to this, in a sense, myself. But, you know, due to peer pressure, etc., I'm quite certain I'm going to watch An Unearthly Child on the day in question... Uh, probably mm-hmm. just part one, though. Um, yeah, I'm the same. I can't get past that well, first part. The first part, I think, is awesome, but I just no, struggle I with the, get past, the whole caveman thing. And I will on on some occasions, but not this Doctor Who day, I don't think, because you know, I don't know. I because I'd rather follow it up with something else, uh, like who knows, mm-hmm. uh, I could do some caves or something. Because uh, yes, I'm one of those people. Who <laughs> apparently Case Vandizani is like my all-time favorite classic episode of Doctor Who, but I maintain that goes back from when I was in my Doctor Who vacuum, or Doctor Who Hoover. Does that work? Um, because I was always a fan of that long before I knew what anybody else thought about it. So I'm not. I think that's one of the fun things about Doctor Who fandom is that everyone has their favorites and. Yeah, what you may have is your standout favorite, maybe someone else's worst story. Yes, but, but I think that's one of the cool things about yeah, it. It's just a coincidence that my favorite just happens to be what everybody else, or not everybody else, but a large segment tend to like as well. You just have very good taste. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> that's debatable. That's debatable. I remember watching it as a kid, Caves, and it was stunning. You know, it's really a great story and uh, I think it took me a while to get over that as a child because obviously Peter Davison was a real hero it's a big institution here in the UK and uh, yeah that was a pretty stunning story from start to finish really. he's up against it from as soon as he steps out of the TARDIS really isn't he well yeah but as many know Peter Davison was essentially my fa- my first doctor so I have that mm-hmm. but um, but Caves is, you know, partly uh, so significant to me because Perry very much became my primary companion during those years, during my formative Doctor Who years. So that's mm-hmm. another reason why Caves is such a big thing to me. Because, uh, yeah, like Perry was like for what many people, especially those older than me, like how they described their Sarah Jane in that era, mm-hmm. Perry was sort of my Sarah Jane at the time. So obviously as an American, you weren't kind of put off by Nicola Bryant's accent? Um, well, especially not for the simple fact that I didn't speak with an American accent at that time. So <laughs> I don't know if I really had much to base that on, you know? So that was never a thing to me uh, because I didn't have an American accent when that episode aired. Because for those not in the know, you did spend your formative years in the UK, didn't you? This is a fact. This is true. This is true. 
Yes. Um, You're one of us. Uh, that's another stretch, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm one of you, but this is true. I spent my 400 years in uh, in Northens. That's that was my little mm. my little patch of stomping ground, and uh, American or at least American with an American accent was not my first language. Mm. Scottish is uh, something you're pretty well. Well, you know, I did stop in Scotland for a smidge first before I set foot in England proper. <laughs> so who knows? For anyone who doesn't know, just check out one of Eric's shows, and uh, eventually we'll hear him doing his Scottish accent. I really don't it's amazing. know what uh, Mark is talking about. <laughs> really. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, a huge thing on Twitter. Certainly in Doctor Who fandom is the whole um, convention scene. I know you're a huge fan of Galley. Uh, well, how, I mean, well, if you're a fan of Doctor Who, how could you not be? Uh, I mean, we often, or is it just me who calls it the Doctor Who mecca? Um, mm-hmm. It has to be. Uh, has to be. I, I don't know. I don't know what else. Of course, I don't have many other Doctor Who conventions to compare it to. Um, mm-hmm. but really where else would you rather be uh, as many know it's, it's, a, it's a very small nicely compact Doctor Who convention which is bigger on the inside ha 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 see what you did there yeah. yeah I'm still trying to convince my wife she wants to spend her holiday in a hotel in LA yeah but, I, yeah, but don't think of it as a hotel in LA because on its own that's a horrible thing um, <laughs> horrible. Uh, but no, but yeah, because you spend most of the time in the lobby anyway. Yeah, uh, it's 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 absolutely worth it. Um, I don't know where to begin on something like Galley. Uh, I mean, it just it's just a, it's a weird sort of from a fan perspective. It's a weird sort of self fulfillment. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're ever trying to get to the apex of anything, whether you're an athlete and you're trying to compete in the Olympics or in the business world trying to head up your own little section or company at some point, as a Doctor Who fan, I, I don't really know what more you could aspire to than just simply attending a Gallifrey convention in, in L.A. Uh, I don't know what more anyone could really want from a convention experience I mean, does everyone know what I'm talking I think, about? Like, I don't even know if people understand Galley because I know people have been to conventions in general, but and mm-hmm. I have too. But Galley is something different. It is something unique, and not just because it's Doctor Who. Uh, it's it's got a sense of community, uh, mm-hmm. and that cannot be understated. Uh, it's very, very different. It's very, very different, and it's there's in other words, you get so much that is not in the program, so to speak, not mm-hmm. listed in the brochure. You have to show up and experience it for yourself. So, for anyone who's not heard of it, it's it's a huge, huge convention. I think it's the biggest one. It's the biggest in the U.S. for sure. Uh, I mean, because I don't know how large they get in size mm-hmm. in England. Uh, but it's not just again; it's not the size that matters per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what she said. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, this this year twenty well, 
the coming convention in 2013 is the first one that is already pre-sold out. So if you're not mm, already registered, I'm so sorry. You're not going to get in for mm. 2013. But there is always 2014. Goodness, that sounds a little ways off. But uh, but yeah, this is the first time it's ever been sold out. That's a new development. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they can only fit so many people into that quite large hotel. Uh, I think the nearest thing we ever got to that was um, back in the 80s when they had the Longleat celebration. don't know if you're aware of I that. It was not. huge. And they had all of the doctors. So I think I'm right in saying at that time they were all alive apart from Hartnell. William Hartnell. Oh, yes. So, yeah, they were all there. And it was a case of just come along to Longleat House, which is this huge stately home in the country in England. And it was just kind of like, well, it was bedlam. There were just loads of people queuing that couldn't get in, and you'd have, like, Peter Davidson walking down the line just to say hello to them, to try and make it up to them. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like uh, Who Fans Woodstock. It was, yeah. It's gone down in folklore in this country, but um, I don't think they've ever repeated and anything like it. that's an important distinction, again, because it's not necessarily the size. While there are a lot of tendee- attendees at Gallifrey, um, it's not Woodstock. Well, it is not Woodstock, not that I was at Woodstock, but... I mean, because it's not necessarily like throngs or a sea of fans and, you know, uh, some star trying to, like, reach out his arms and trying to glance, mm-hmm. you know, the hands of a few lucky fans. It's not like that. It's more, much more personable. I mean, there is the content, uh, the panels and such on the program, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is, you know, what people refer to as LobbyCon where yeah. you're just milling about, but not just milling about. Uh, by and large... It's a social yeah, thing. The, most, the majority of the guests at any given Galfrey tend to mill about on their own. Uh, not because they mm-hmm. have to, not because someone told them to, but because, as previously stated, they're just cooped up in a, in a hotel. You know? <laughs> so, they, they, you know, it's, it's different. You know, obviously they're not in their home country or their home place. For, for the most part uh, so they're just stuck in a hotel so what do they do they just hang out in the lobby and they're quite personable and just there you know this is just and that's part of what makes Galley so the thing and yeah you're gonna get your fans like oh oh for Mr. Fraser Hines oh you're so amazing and you get <laughs> sure you get that but then it it, it hits a certain level of normalcy where you're mm. just talking to your friend and oops, you just accidentally stepped into Louise Jameson because you didn't realize she was just staring yeah. behind you because you weren't necessarily focused on her as, oh my God, Louise Jameson. It's just, oh no, uh, yeah, Leela. Yeah, she's right behind me. Yeah, whatever. Who uh, famously once kissed you, I hear. Uh, I cannot, I can neither confirm or deny that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, it, yeah. Yeah, she's she's a wonderful woman. That's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> but uh, so the, there's no kind of starriness about the the guests there. You like you say you can be at the bar and just rub shoulders with them. And it's just like <laughs> absolutely. Kind of... <laughs> that is more true than you know. More true. <laughs> I mean, yes, I've literally th- I've literally had my shoulders rubbed, uh, not in that way. But I mean, <laughs> but rubbed by a guest of previous galley of, of previous galley. Yeah, that, that has happened. 
literally as you say. So there's so much more to Galley than obviously one of the huge draws is the the stars they get to come out, but you've got the whole um, cosplaying thing. Oh, Lordy Lord, quite important for a lot it, of attendees. It is off the charts. It is off the charts. The whole because I don't think I was really ever aware of the to that degree how big cosplay was in general uh, before mm-hmm. I went to a galley. And, uh, yeah, the Masquerade Ball, that's one of the offense on the docket. Uh, that's massive. That's, for many people at galley, that's, like, the biggest thing on the docket, even bigger than any of the guests, is the Masquerade Ball. And that's when the creme de la creme of the cosplayers strut their stuff on stage. Uh and so that is a wildly popular thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work goes into those costumes because, you know, I've been to a few small events and quite often you get something that looks like it's been kind of knocked together in five minutes, whereas these guys, you know, it looks like something right out of the show. Uh, this is a fact, yes. Some people go above and beyond. There's no question about that. But, I mean, I'm not particularly into the cosplay thing. But it is a mm-hmm. ton of fun, and uh, yeah, it's well, it's good times. It's good times. So you would highly recommend going if you get the chance. Uh, yes. I mean, we're talking about Gallifrey. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody has to at least once if you're a Doctor Who fan, regardless of what which country you reside. Um, and also, I mean, as I said, I mean it's the first time it's sold out, and who knows how. The atmosphere may shift going onwards into the future. You know, mm. who's to say if how much bigger can it get? Yes, and and how much longer it'll be able to retain this uh, sense of personable, you know, kinship. Uh, I mean, it's like going to a music concert. You go to a small venue and it feels like a real event. You know, there's like a connection between you and the the band. And then you go to a huge stadium, and it's. It's yeah, still an absolutely. experience, this is but absolutely it's not the same. A small venue, but not only a small venue, but a small venue where virtually everyone in attendance has some sort of backstage pass, in a way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. Is it Josh who, who often says, not necessarily on any podcast, but just says in general that a lot of times, a lot of your best meetings or. Uh, brushing with Doctor Who celebrities at Galley is often just in elevator rides. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times that's when you'll just be in the elevator there at Galley and go, oh, look, Janet Fielding is right there next to me. And for that <laughs> 20 to 30 seconds, that's a great opportunity just to say, uh, hello, and now goodbye. <laughs> but I think a lot of people <laughs> had a lot of their... Uh, up close and personal meetings with different uh, Doctor Who celebs via elevators. So there's that. Certainly, I have. But. So, is there anyone that you've met? And it's probably wrong to ask you this, but they kind of say you don't, you shouldn't meet your heroes. Is there anyone oh, that you like all of them? So impressed with? What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> like you shouldn't meet your heroes? Oh wait, wait, wait. What do you mean exactly? In as much as they didn't come across in the way that you. Kind oh of no, no, no! I thought you. I thought you meant in a different. No, no I'm sorry. I took that question in a different way. Uh, <laughs> I, the way I originally took your question was, um, all the Doctor Who, by and large, all the Doctor Who players or actors or anyone connected to the show, uh, mm-hmm. come off as people who couldn't be more self-deprecating and couldn't be more modest 
about their impact mm. on fans. Uh, if you ever met a group of celebrities who didn't come off as celebrities, uh, I mean, take that in, in the spirit in which it's meant, but that's mm. how virtually every guest I've met at, at uh, Galley comes off as. But as far as... <laughs> hmm. I'm not <laughs> sure. Well, he's never really been my hero, but Eric Roberts was definitely a character. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely a character off stage, so to speak, or many say on stage. <laughs> I didn't see him on stage. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, let's just say, yeah, I ran into a. Oh, I was going to use the word surly. That's an overstatement, but I ran into a mm, an interesting Eric Roberts while in the restroom at a Gallifrey. Uh, that, that was very interesting. Was cool. That must have been awkward. Slightly, it was. It was. I mean, because I, I, I hadn't even seen him before, before that moment, and it, I mean, I, obviously, I know him more from movies than Doctor Who, and mm-hmm. and I remember him quite well in The Dark Knight, for instance. And it, yeah. well, the the most striking thing to me in person, first of all, aside from how old he looks nowadays, but he's actually a rather small person. Not small, but. I mean, he's larger than life on screen. In person, yeah. he's just much more diminutive in stature. And, mm-hmm. like, if you didn't know it was Eric Roberts, you would just think, oh, this is just some random man in his 60s. Uh, I mean, because the way he dresses is very unassuming, just like any mm-hmm. average Joe, if you will. And yeah. you wouldn't think, oh, by the way, this is that guy, you know, who's, like, nominated for an Academy Award and Runaway Train. No, that is not the vibe you get at all from Eric Roberts. Uh, so he wasn't dressed for the occasion? No, he just looked like a regular guy. Like He could have just been a fan in attendance. Like, Sorry, I had to throw that one no. in there. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, so he was just interesting in general. Hmm. Um, hmm. Okay, that's enough of me putting you on the spot. That was harsh. Oh, no, no. no. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're all good people by and large. Yeah, both me and my wife are big fans of uh, Stephen King and, more latterly, Joe Hill, who's a a pretty good writer in his sort of uh, genre uh, because he writes um, horror novels, but he also writes a comic book series called Lock and Key. I don't know if that's one that you've read. I know there's a a lot of people out there who really like it. I actually dabbled in that just a bit, though. I got the first Mm -hmm. trade paperback. Uh, which is the first six stories or issues. And I quite liked it. Uh, I didn't finish it, the the, Mm -hmm. the trade paperback. Uh, I got it because it was at a time when, oh, goodness me, I had read everything up to that point that I had in my possession. Mm -hmm. So it was when I was trying to find more things. Because now I'm in the complete opposite mode of trying to find less things to want to read. But I was in the mode of trying to find more things, and that's when I stumbled upon uh, Lock and Key. I read a bit of it, and it was quite enjoyable. I just haven't been able to follow up. But what was weird, or not weird, but... You see, I don't know what it was like for everyone else. Uh, Because in England, at the time, when I was Mm -hmm. in infant school, because 
Because I didn't live in an urban setting, and it seems to me an urban setting would be quite a bit different. Uh, mm-hmm. But in my school, they had you know these all these little stories, these series of stories that uh, that they had that kids would be reading like during our formative years, like mm-hmm. age five, six, and so. And so there was this particular yeah. series of books geared towards that age of reader that we had in my mm-hmm. school. And I don't know if everybody had this in, in, at that time, mm-hmm. but there was some sort of stories that involved ethereal happenings. And there was a kid, a protagonist, a boy, and there was something to do with ghosts and spirits and keys and things. Mm-hmm. But see, I vaguely remember it, and I don't remember what it was called. But there was like a whole line of it, like there was, like I don't know, ten books in the series, uh, or so, and you would just keep reading like the first, the second. Oh, which one are you on? I'm on six. Oh, I'm on eight. Blah blah blah. And that does sound vaguely yeah, familiar. Yeah, locking key was kind of like bringing up these memories for me, but I haven't yet been hmm. able to place them. I mean, I went through this several months ago because I was trying to remember old TV shows that I used to really, really like in England, aside from Doctor Who at that time period. Mm -hmm. And somebody else, um, uh, Quarry Doors on Twitter from Nottingham, uh, Mm -hmm. actually helped me remember, like, all the old shows I used to like. Uh, One of the ones I really liked uh, was The Adventure Game. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. I was huge into that. Um, The other was (laughs) that, that, that special that, they would sometimes air like at holiday times. Uh, starring starring Patrick Troughton as a hobo. Uh, oh, the box, the of, box delights. of delights. And see, yeah, that was the other awesome. one that Corridors, aka Nat, helped me uh, suss out. Mm-hmm. And the third, we watch that every Christmas. Yes, and the third that I really, really remember from that time period was the child drama, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what is mm-hmm. it, Chalky? C-H-O-C-K? Yeah. All three of the... Yeah. I haven't seen that since it came out. Uh, I haven't well, I certainly haven't watched time. any of those since they essentially came out. But those mm. were the three properties that I, I couldn't remember that, that Nat helped me remember. Uh, mm. But I still haven't figured out what that old little book series was about the kid and the keys and the ghosts and the things. Uh, but yeah, that's, so you, you brought up Locking Key, which I was not expecting. And that mm. verily reminds me of that. <laughs> well, maybe somebody out there listening will know <laughs> the books that you're talking about. So email us in or respond on Twitter. Put Eric out of his misery. Let him know. Yes, I wish I had more details <laughs> to go on, but mm-hmm. someone may be able to put that together from even just that. Because, again, in my school, we all read that. Like Nobody, everyone mm-hmm. read that, you know. So it was at least universal in our village. So I don't know. I think we were very lucky in my primary school we had the uh, hobbit read to us by our english oh, teacher goodness, and that was the hobbit wow pretty awesome yeah that's well which i'm really looking forward to the movie movies oh of course but i don't know i was such the avid reader when i was younger because i'm not and i know many people feel the same way about themselves but i don't know too many other children who read one of the first sci-fi proper novels that I ever read uh, was Frank Herbert's Dune. And mm-hmm. I read that somewhere between second and third grade. Uh, and 
That's well, pretty intense for I don't know what a young reader. Order the years in England, but uh, mm. that would be primary school age, I think. Uh, for mm-hmm. you guys, uh, I mean, I was essentially about approximately seven years old, and I read Frank Herbert's wow. Dune, uh, and understood by and large the gist of the entire book. I mean, I didn't understand the mm-hmm. intricacies of course and the nuances and things of that nature. I mean, because think about it. I, I mean, have you read Dune? Are you familiar with the story just in general? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it. I have right. to be but even if you haven't read it, if you've seen the film or something, I mean, you essentially mm-hmm. know it has to do with basically space politics, like Game of Thrones, except, yeah. you know, in a mm-hmm. far-flung, fantastical future. Uh, well, I mean, think about it. When you're seven years old, like I was at the time, you don't even really know your history in general. So you don't even really mm-hmm. understand what the word politics means or... You know, even anything about the ins and outs of kings and queens or royalty or anything. And so... I think the thing is, when you when you read something like that at that age, you can enjoy it on a certain level, and then you can come back to it and read it later and just take something totally different from absolutely. it. Absolutely. So I was reading it with no frame of reference. Uh, it was just, mm-hmm. oh, you know, there are these different houses that people belong to and they're all vying for power but i had no context at all you know because the closest thing Mm -hmm. i was familiar with at the time was like star wars but star wars is not like game of thrones or dune i mean there's some similarities but Mm -hmm. but not really so it's just it's interesting to me to know that i was reading that with like no frame of reference at all just taking it in as it was oh big worms Mm -hmm. yeah this all makes sense (laughs) So it makes sense, but but I don't know, even now though, when I look back, when I think back about that about Dune and reading, I, I don't even know where I was coming from. Like, uh, I mean, I can barely read, I can barely get through Moby Dick like right now, uh, as an adult, and mm-hmm. yet I was reading that at age seven. I don't really know how that math works. I think I'm similar. I, my attention span has really dropped off as I've gotten older. I just can't. You know, something's really got to grip me to get me to read it right the way through. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I hope that satisfied your lock and key query. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, because we, we read the, uh, a lot of his books and um, hear a lot about lock and key. So Oh, you haven't read it yourself? Yeah, I think she's thinking of... No, no, she's thinking of uh, dipping her toe oh, into the whole comic definitely, book definitely, definitely. Oh, so, if you already have that interest going in, definitely. Mm. I, I hardly... Okay. Yeah, um, even though I haven't read the entire one myself, but no, it is good stuff. It's just I had so much else on my plate. Uh, another one that mm-hmm. I don't recommend as much, like I mentioned, Saga earlier. Another one I really, really liked mm-hmm. that came out of left field for me was another by Image uh, comics uh, called Morning Glories, which is about okay. a bunch of American like gifted kids, uh, like high school age, who come from mm-hmm. different parts of the country uh but all end up in this really exclusive like what you guys would call boarding school um yeah and that's how it starts off but once they get to the school it's it, it it's it's the breakfast club meets the prisoner there you go I coined that. I wow. coined that first <laughs> that's a hell of a combination <laughs> yes but that's essentially and if anyone you know gives it a look morning glories 
you will see exactly what I'm talking about, and you will go, oh, yes, he was so right on the money. It is The Breakfast Club meets The Prisoner. <laughs> uh, I hadn't actually thought of that before. I'm going to continue to use it. I'm going to steal that for myself. But uh, <laughs> it is, and it's fantastic. And, uh, again, you don't have to get 12 issues in to go, oh, by gum, this is good stuff. No, like two issues in, you'll know what I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. that's another good one. Uh, so, and, and another good thing about comics in general that I've found with Twitter and everything, um, like a lot of people uh, who work on Doctor Who behind or in front of the camera, as I was saying mm-hmm. earlier, they're all very accessible, you know? Like, they're not like these yeah. big Hollywood types with thousands and mm-hmm. thousands upon thousands of followers and whatnot. They're not jaded in that way. Well, I found the same thing about like comic creators and such because like morning glories, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, uh, like the, the artist, like all of these people are on Twitter, just like anybody else, the artists and the writers. And they're all extremely accessible on Twitter. Just like mm-hmm. quote unquote, regular folk. Um, just like, uh, for the last better part of the year, the guy who was the head writer on Uncanny X-Men, uh, he's, he's a Brit, uh, named Kieran Gillen. And okay. of course, with a name like that, I had to joke on Twitter to him, <laughs> oh, so you're not Matt Smith's companion on Doctor Who. And of course, <laughs> I was just about the thousandth person to bring that up to Kieran Gillen. But he responded. But um, I'm I'm sure he took it in good Yes, price. he did. And he showed me a great photoshopped image of his actual <laughs> face uh, photoshopped onto uh, Amy Pond. And that was that was a delight <laughs> to receive. So, thank you. Well, I think there's... <laughs> I think there's um, uh, quite a tradition of uh, Brits getting involved in comics. I think one of the people I admire most, who's a real English eccentric, is Alan Moore. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Big, heavy. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's written some of the, the biggest books out there. He's not got, perhaps, the best relationship with uh, movie producers. I notice he's got a, a movie of his own coming out soon, which I forget the title of now, which is really bad preparation for me. Um, but, yeah, I know he... He wasn't overly impressed with um, Viva Vendetta when it came out, and I think he completely washed his hands of the whole idea when it came well, to making the, the movie. It is a Wachowski sibling production. That's all I'm going to say about that. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, I think any author of any original work may be a little uh, head scratchy after a Wachowski yeah. interpretation of their own work. No, but... but he always comes across as a really nice guy. Oh, yeah. I. I don't know personally, but I'm sure. But you guys, you Brits, and also other non-American English speakers, uh, you guys are taking over everything, not just comics. Uh, <laughs> not just our films, but, I mean, going back to Walking Dead for a second, because that's a glaring mm. example to me. Because uh, I was a little... Well, your lead characters are Brit. Yeah, oh my God, and I didn't even know. And I don't know if you've watched The Walking Dead at all, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Oh yeah, you did. You said he's season one, but yeah. you know, obviously, mm-hmm. it's in 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 the American South is where it takes place in, in the Georgia area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rick's character is actually originally from Kentucky in in the series, mm-hmm. and uh, so obviously, everyone's speaking with a little bit of a southern drawl. 
which I can't even properly yeah. do. And lo and behold, oh yeah, duh, he's a Brit, of course, but not just Rick. <laughs> um, someone who I really grew to like in the television series uh, in the season two of Walking Dead mm-hmm. was our Urschel's daughter, uh, Maggie. And I've become quite yeah. the fan of Maggie uh, as series mm-hmm. season two progressed. And I only just discovered two, three months ago that she was a Brit as well. Really? Yes. So fascinating. Hmm. And uh, just the other day, there was a short little promo that they did. Because in America, we have this show called Talking Dead, which is basically like a televised mm-hmm. podcast reaction show. I'm with you. Uh, for The Walking Dead. And they mm-hmm. showed a little bit on there a week or so on The Talking Dead. It's like a behind-the-scenes type featurette. And I finally mm-hmm. got to see Maggie, whose the actress's name escapes me now, speaking in her regular mm-hmm. British voice. Oh, wow. So delightful. <laughs> I always love uh, hearing these Brit actors masquerading as Americans. I love hearing them. So she's like a modern-day Nicola Bryan. Uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, obviously, just like so many others, she had me convinced that she wasn't British. Uh, yeah, they got David Morrissey in the new series as well, haven't you? Yeah, so another brick well, to add to the collection. If any of them fail, not just on Walking Dead, but I mean on anything, if anybody fails to convince me that they're American, uh, mm. it's Morrissey. When when he first started speaking in season three, because his voice has kind of changed and modulated as the ser- as mm. the season has progressed, but when he first started speaking, uh, he came off as this weird uh, Liam Neeson type sounding voice mm-hmm. to me uh where it's like you can tell like something's not right like what's... now is that your preconception because you'd seen him in other stuff already i or... don't think so maybe not. i don't think so it just has it, like i said liam neeson just like liam neeson himself like if you didn't know who he was liam neeson you just met him on the street and he just started speaking mm-hmm. to you in the way that he often does in his films you may not be able to pin exactly where he's from, but you would know he's probably not from around here, wherever here mm-hmm. happens to be. Yeah, and that's the vibe I not totally authentic. got from uh, uh, Morrissey. Because, well, if you're looking to get into your Brit culture, um, one that I can certainly recommend for you, series-wise, is Blackpool. I don't know if you're aware I'm of that not one. Not aware of that one. Oh, you will love it. Why is that? It's David Morrissey. It's David Morrissey and a guy called David Tennant. Don't know if you've heard of him. Mm, I don't know. I'll have my people look into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and David Tennant plays a detective, and uh, David Morrissey Actually, is this kind of shady guy. I think I may have seen just the icon or whatever you want to call it, image for Blackpool mm-hmm. with David Morrissey. Now that I think mm-hmm. about it from like browsing what's available on Netflix yeah. streaming right now for us, I think that came up as a recommendation for me. But yeah, uh, and they go into song and dance numbers. They go into what? Song and dance numbers. Oh, southern dance numbers, and I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> but, okay, interesting. Um, so you got him and you got David Tennant and Dave Morrissey doing uh, Nancy Sinatra's "These Boots Are Made for Walking." Oh dear, oh dear. It's it sounds wrong, but it's brilliant TV. Um, well, we'll have to see because it's a BBC I'm show. always it's I don't know people like to say that I am just so enthused by everything new to me, but that's just the way it appears I think because because it's always dodgy me 
getting into a new show, whether American or British, because uh, mm-hmm. there are so many that don't work out for me. Um, or they work out, but because I already have so much on my plate, I can't fit them in. You know, mm-hmm. like something like that that comes to my mind is like Misfits, which okay. many people are telling me, you need to check this out. You need to see this. All right. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to, but I did. And I watched the first episode and I thought, wow, okay, that was actually interesting. That was actually more than I expected. Mm-hmm. People were probably right in recommending this to me. That being said, I have too much going on, so I have not yet been able to like, continue on with that series, even though I got a great impression of it just from one episode. It's just mm-hmm. too much. I'm trying to take advantage of this lean time uh, or all the lean times of when there's not new who because uh because i feel like there's just one more albatross in the room that's at least staring at me i don't know if it's staring <laughs> at you but the, okay. the one other big topic that i've seen in the shadows at, just for me this entire conversation is just mm-hmm. a certain british secret agent and that certain british secret oh, agent has yeah. actually been dominating everything around me and everything I've been taking in for the last, what, five, six weeks now running? Uh, Johnny English. Absolutely, obviously. Uh, you know, cool. penchant for uh, Mr. Bean, <laughs> international man of mystery. Oh, did you mean James Bond? Yes, JB himself. Yeah, mm. that's been really the biggest thing, and which is why there's been so much output, especially on my other podcast or, or feed the prognag chicken not stirred feed mm. because we have just been enthralled to bits uh all of us there on that feed talking uh jb i listened to it just today oh which one was that the the skyfall review oh wow well you're ahead of me because i actually haven't even listened to that entire conversation yet because <laughs> i haven't had a chance because i know i know you're a huge fan of casino royale oh. Um, yes, am I? So, this had to go some to to top it in your opinion. Ah, uh, yes, and I, as you heard, a spoiler for Prognag number nineteen. <laughs> um, so, if you haven't heard that, just shut this off, shut off Nerdology, put it on pause, <laughs> yeah. go listen to Prognag nineteen, then come back. And uh, in the end, at the end of the day, yeah, you know, I think Skyfall is my number one favorite Bond film, at least for now. I mean, that is certainly open to change in coming months and years uh, because mm-hmm. my favorites are always shifting, whether it's Bond or other properties. Uh, but mm-hmm. as of right now, for right now, yes, Skyfall did eclipse Casino Royale for reasons stated in that podcast. Um, and I'm okay with that. I think they had a great mix. What's that? They had a great mix. You had the... The set pieces. You had this more serious bond that they've established in the last two films, but you had a bit of humor in there as well. The cast was amazing. You know, no one was letting the side down. They were all just sterling. I mean, Javier Bardem was just Absol- knocked absolutely. it out of the park. I don't want to mix metaphors because it'll probably be confusing to some, because it probably doesn't work for other <laughs> people. But for me personally, it worked in a way that the latest Star Trek film in 2009 worked for me as a Star Trek fan. And I know other people mm-hmm. feel the same as me, and I also know plenty of people absolutely feel abhorrent to that idea. Uh, but 
but it's the same kind of way, uh, even though they're wildly different. Do not compare Star Trek 2009 to Skyfall. That's not what I'm trying to do. But just my feeling and perception and reaction to them is what I'm comparing. Mm-hmm. In, in that it just seemed like so many good elements, the timing and everything just seemed to come together in a way that if you were a fan of either Bond or Star Trek in the way I have been for the better part of my life, it just, it was almost like a love letter to me. It was almost like, I, I almost feel like I was the target audience. Like I was the target demo mm-hmm. uh, for Skyfall or Star Trek. I think they kept in all the, the best things about it. They kept in the, you know, they kept they had gadgets and stuff, but they kept it to a, a kind of a sensible minimum. But they hit all those beats that you expect from a Bond film. Yeah, they absolutely did. And I think you're right in what you say about Star Trek as well. What, the, the, the thing I find the most confusing, though, about Skyfall, about the people who have been slightly critical of it or somewhat critical, mm-hmm. people, random people I've run into on Twitter or Facebook or reviewers mm-hmm. or reviews I read, what the the one of the most common if I if I boil it all down one of the most common uh criticisms i hear of skyfall is that a person starts off by saying something to the effect of this isn't the bond i know or this isn't you know your typical bond film but then when they explain what they mean and say this wasn't a typical bond film they back it up with something like it was just uh, weak character development with bits of action and glossy production. And so, in other words, the way they explain... That's a Bond film. Exactly! That's why I'm so confused! (laughs) I don't understand! So, this isn't the Bond you know because it mimics the Bond you know? Like, And I'm just really... I mean, I'm really oversimplifying what other people have said, but that's what I take out of their words. And so I'm not... I often wonder, are people reading back what they're writing? Or... I also think... And I think this is a big thing, too. I mean, I think it's about a lot of things. I think about it just about in terms of New Who, uh, excluding Mm -hmm. Classic Who, but I think the same thing is true with um, James Bond and Star Trek. I think... Many people out there are suffering from cheating memory. I really, really do. Uh, because when I go... I know a lot of people, like... There's a lot of people who go, Oh, Goldeneye. That's my favorite Bond movie. You know, you know, I was 14 in 1995, and that just, mm-hmm. that just blew me away. That's what made me a Bond fan, etc., etc. But then, you know, when was the last time you watched Goldeneye? No, probably 10, 12 years ago. And I'm not saying GoldenEye isn't great. I still love it now. Mm. But it's I a do. bit different when you watch it now, especially when you haven't seen it for 10 years. Uh, it's not bad. They do date. But it, it's different. And, you know, mm. really? I mean, because a lot of people, for instance, poo-poo Quantum of Solace. Uh, and, you know, especially because of, what it has I, I may possibly be counted okay. in their numbers well, after a minute. can relate to this. <laughs> many, many, many people do. And I understand. It is certainly the most lacking of the Daniel Craig era, for sure. But... I mean, they had stuff to co- contend with because they had the writer's strike, so he was effectively having to but help that... write it, and he admits himself he's not a writer. But that being said, 
in my mind, if you really put it up side by side to choose your classic Bond film du jour, I personally think Quantum of Solace is quite capable and actually quite good, and certainly in the better half of the uh, of the franchise as a whole. I mean, that's just my opinion. But again, I think it has good moments. Oh yeah, for sure. But I but again, I think I'm. It's because I think other people are not really going back in their head, or not just in their head, but actually reviewing the old canon, so to speak. Because mm-hmm. uh, most people, I am assuming, maybe rewatched their three favorite classic Bond films. I mean, let's just pretend. Oh yeah, I watched Goldfinger, Goldeneye, uh, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever your flavor happens to be. But but you still need to go back and watch your live and let dies. Your man with the golden guns. Your view to a kills. Your living mm-hmm. daylights. Your your only live twice. Diamonds are forever. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, we all love Bond as a whole, <laughs> but there are a lot of dodgy Bond films. Let's yeah. be frank. And QoS, while it may be lacking as a Craig, it is pretty competent, I think, even if it may not be exactly what people are looking for. Die another day, for goodness sakes. The world is not enough. See, I mean, when you actually think about it, there's more really bad or... Because there's a lot of Bond films that, let's be honest, if they didn't have Bond attached to the title, uh, we would never, ever revisit ever again. We wouldn't be buying in box sets of Blu-rays, you know, because there's some that are quite... Yeah, that's on my wish list. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Might as well, even though I pretty much already own it all anyway. Yeah, it's kind of pricey, but, you know, a, I live in I, I think it's a bargain in this country, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's going... I don't, I, don't, I don't know what this comes out to in pounds. Well, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in, it's going for about 149 right now over here, which when mm-hmm. in pounds is like, what, 100 pounds or so? Yeah. And, I yeah. mean, to get... It's not far off that over here. two films... For, of those films for a hundred pounds, uh, mm-hmm. I think I'll take that. I think I think you could do worse. I may have to revisit Quantum of Solace. Um, you've convinced me to give it another. It's go. not bad. It's just certainly not Casino Royale or uh, Skyfall, mm-hmm. not by a long stretch. But but as you heard in the Prognag, and if mm-hmm. you've listened to me on other podcasts as well, and I try to downplay it. I mean, even in our discussion on Skyfall, but that. Those literary tropes that they trot out in Skyfall, mm-hmm. uh, some people roll their eyes mm-hmm. when they recognize things of that nature because they just feel like, oh, this isn't original anymore. They're just doing this or that. But actually, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. I love, uh, again, spoilers for Skyfall, but the whole resurrection motif, the whole falling to depths and arising again. Uh, mm-hmm. I know everyone keeps saying, "Oh, Dark Knight Rises," blah. but I love that stuff in general, and to have that in my Bond, that's not a bad thing. So we usually round these shows out by getting the guests to recommend a few things that they've been enjoying lately. So obviously, Skyfall's one of those. That's pretty much down as a, um, a given. Yeah, I've kind of touched upon anything else on your radar. Actually, yes. Uh, aside from things I've already mentioned. I think I've mentioned mm-hmm. quite a lot, maybe too much. But uh, <laughs> on television, something I haven't brought up yet, it's been a bit of a surprise to me, this television mm-hmm. television season here in America, since our seasons typically start in the fall. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Arrow, 
which in America is on the CW network, a network I don't watch anything else on, uh, but Arrow, based on the DC property of Green Arrow. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. I hear a lot of that people talking about that. That has been a diamond in the rough, I shall say. Mm. Uh, something that I was very skeptical and wary going into, especially because mm-hmm. CW, that has a lot of negative connotations. Uh, when you just say that here in this country, like, oh, it's on the CW, uh, uh, that, that doesn't <laughs> bode well. But It's kind of like BBC3 <laughs> over here. Yeah, it doesn't bode well at all. Because usually the target demo for CW, CW in this country is usually, um, they usually target, like, girls aged 13 to 20 is usually the target demographic for that network. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Arrow is not that. I mean... They, some of that demo may like Arrow, but that is not the target demo. Uh, mm-hmm. Arrow is good. I, again, this is coming for a guy who doesn't really read, nor never has really read DC Comics. Uh, Green Arrow is definitely not one of the marquee names in the DC stable. But mm-hmm. this is a good show. Uh, in short... Is he kind of like a modern-day Robin Hood? It is. It is. Or is that simplifying no, it too no, much? No, but I mean, that's the basic premise in a, in a way uh, but but in terms of tone and whatnot it's almost like uh, because I don't know did you ever watch Smallville before okay. yeah see and that's another thing that kind of shades Arrow in a, in a wrong light in a way because Smallville was more fun and upbeat I guess you could say especially mm-hmm. in the earlier seasons uh I used to be in a house share with someone who was obsessed with Smallville. Yeah. I, I used to be obsessed with it myself um, in the early years of the show. Mm-hmm. But Arrow takes a different... It's more modern. Uh, it has more like the modern Marvel movie approach. Which is no bad thing. Well, yeah, others will disagree. But it has a certain type of... Because I don't want to say it has a bat, uh, Batman Begins tone. That's That would be wrong. And also turns off a lot of people, apparently. But more a... Iron Man 1 sensibility or even the new Amazing Spider-Man film which I am a massive okay. fan of but uh, as compared to the original Spider-Man trilogy uh, Arrow is that type of superhero tale again, also more grounded in reality than say uh, Smallville for instance as of yet no one has displayed any sort of superhuman or supernatural mutant ability you know Okay. It's more grounded in realism, I guess. Sort of like the Nolan Batman films, in which nobody has any right, okay. like, superhuman powers. Uh, that's how Arrow is, and it's kind of grounded in that sort of pseudo-realism. And like it's, so do we get cameos from the DC Universe? Well, or is that again, not really again I'm not a DC fanboy, but I actually have been pleasantly surprised. I don't know, because I don't know... There's been one big one that... Because there are about six or seven episodes in. There was one big one an episode ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Shall I say it? Or should I just say people should go seek that out? Uh, but, <laughs> Maybe we'll avoid the spoilers okay. on that. Well, there, there yeah, is, I... there, they've already definitely included one or two other people from DC Universe. But again, not marquee names, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just a casual viewer... It's something for the fans. Yeah, if you're a casual viewer, you may not even pick up on who it is or what you're seeing because this isn't as blatant mm-hmm. there's no 
there's no Superman or Batman swooping in or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But if you are a fan of the comics, uh, and even I know, not being a fan of DC, I was like, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> that is, wow, what a treat. Because I, I just wasn't expecting that stuff going into the show. So Arrow, check that out. And, and it's another, even though I said it's grounded in realism and a little bit more down to earth, um, don't mistake me. It is like, as we were talking about this Spider-Man comic earlier, it is just, it's a comfort food television, in my opinion. This isn't like mm. Lost or Fringe, where you're racking your brain every night, trying to like connect the breadcrumbs the showrunner has left for you. No, no, no. It's nothing that taxing. You just sit back and yes. relax. You sit back and relax and just take it in. It doesn't. You don't have to have a degree in TVology to uh, figure out Arrow. <laughs> It's just simple, fun, and entertainment. It's, it's good stuff. That sounds like a really good recommendation. Yes. Check that out. <laughs> yeah, if I had more time, I wouldn't mind starting up that Arrow podcast. But, oh, well. You've only got about three on the go at the moment. What's the matter? <sighs> that's, that's, in a way, three too many. Uh, <laughs> Not as far as I'm concerned. No, you're too kind. <laughs> I am misguided. Well... I've always been easily led. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, you had to get that on him. That's what she anyway, said. thank you, Eric. You're it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And uh, if it hasn't been too traumatic for you, maybe we'll get no, you back again I mean, sometime. even though it's my first time being on the show and actually the first time we've spoken, uh, as it is with all my other friends out there in the, in the podcast, Doctor Whoverse, it seems like I've known you for years. Oh, that's really cool of you to say that can only be frank excellent <laughs> well thanks for coming on the show and uh, tune in again next time bye bye How did I get into this? You know, like what happened to that man I married? Because this is not that same man. Oh God! Like I didn't can't believe. Did I sign up for this? Like I don't That's know. An <laughs> <laughs> well, you may use that.